Welcome back to another episode of Public Domain Read-Along, Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Dear readers, we are commencing with Chapter 5. Isabel, can you give us a quick recap of what's happened up to this point? In Chapters 1 through 4, we meet suffering Jane Eyre, orphan, unbeloved by her shitty aunts and worse cousins. At the very end of chapter four, she has been informed that she's going to school, which she is actually quite excited about. She and Bessie come to terms with why Bessie has been hard on her, but also why Bessie loves her. There's actually quite a beloved little moment between the two. And so here we are at the beginning of chapter five. Jane has been through the crucible and is ready to commence with the next section of her life at Lowood School. All right, chapter five. Five o'clock had hardly struck on the morning of the 19th January when Bessie brought a candle into my closet and found me already up and nearly dressed. I'd risen half an hour before her entrance and had washed my face and put on my clothes by the light of a half moon just setting, whose ray streamed through the narrow window of my little crib. I was to leave Gateshead that day by a coach, which passed the lodge gates at 6 a.m., Bessie was the only person yet risen. She had lighted a fire in the nursery, where she now proceeded to make my breakfast. Few children can eat when excited with the thoughts of a journey, nor could I. Bessie, having pressed me in vain to take a few spoonfuls of the boiled milk and bread she had prepared for me, wrapped up some biscuits in a paper and put them (laughs) into my bag. We can only assume she means cookies for our American listeners. Then she helped me on with my police, which is a cloak and bonnet, and wrapping herself in a shawl, she and I left the nursery. As we passed Mrs. Reed's bedroom, she said, Will you go in and bid Mrs. goodbye? No, Bessie. She came to my crib last night when you were gone down to supper, and said I need not disturb her in the morning or my cousins either, and she told me to remember that she had always been my best friend, and to speak of her and be grateful to her accordingly. What did you say, miss? Nothing. I covered my face with the bedclothes and turned from her to the wall. That was wrong, Miss Jane. Disagree, Bessie. It was quite right, Bessie. Amazing. Your missus had not been my friend. She had been my foe. (laughs) R slash that happened. Oh, Miss Jane, don't say so. (laughs) Goodbye to Gateshead, cried I as we passed through the hall and went out the front door. Do you think it's like that or do you think she's like, goodbye to Gateshead? I don't know. First take. Obviously, goodbye. You don't say cried I. Oh, yeah, that's right. I feel like you're right. It would have been Soto Vache if she'd said I cried rather than like goodbye to Gateshead cried I. I mean, like that's such a direct infinitive putting the verb before the subject there. I'm just like, uh, yeah, no, it's a crow. I know. She is still our very moody gothic girl. Love her. The moon was set and it was very dark. Bessie carried a lantern whose light glanced on wet steps and gravel roads sodden by a recent thaw. Raw and chill was the winter morning. My teeth chattered as I hastened down the drive. There was a light in the porter's lodge. When we reached it, we found the porter's wife just kindling her fire. My trunk, which had been carried down the evening before, stood corded at the door. It wanted but a few minutes of six, and shortly after that hour had struck, the distant roll of wheels announced the cunning coach. I went to the door and watched its lamps approach rapidly through the gloom. Is she going by herself? asked the porter's wife. Yes. And how far is it? Fifty miles. What a long way. I wonder Mrs. Reed is not afraid to trust her so far alone. 
the coach drew up. There it was at the gates, with its four horses and its top laden with passengers. The garden coachman loudly urged haste. My trunk was hoistened up, and I was taken from Bessie's neck, to which I clung with kisses. Be sure and take good care of her, cried she to the guard, and he lifted me into the inside. Aye, aye, was the answer. The door was clapped to. A voice exclaimed, All right, and on we drove. Thus I was severed from Bessie and Gateshead, thus whirled away to unknown, and, as I then deemed, remote and mysterious regions. I remember but little of the journey. I only know that the day seemed to me of preternatural length, and that we appeared to travel over hundreds of miles of road. We passed through several towns, and in one, a very large one, the coach stopped. The horses were taken out, and the passengers alighted to dine. I was carried into an inn where the guard wanted me to have some dinner, but, as I had no appetite, he left me in an immense room with a fireplace at each end, a chandelier pendant from the ceiling, and a little red gallery high up against the wall filled with musical instruments. Here I walked about a long time, feeling very strange and mortally apprehensive of someone coming in and kidnapping me, for I believed in kidnappers, their exploits having frequently figured in Bessie's Fireside Chronicles. Okay, this phrase, I believed in kidnappers, reminds me of when I used to think snuff films weren't real. And I was like, I'm scared of snuff films, but they're not real. But guess what, guys? They are. Yeah, like, this line seems very strange to me in the way that, like, I believed in kidnappers. I think you're right. There's something, at least that Jane is saying here, that feels sort of supernatural. Like, her fear doesn't belong, but it's, like, we the adults. And I imagine also people reading this book at the time were like, but kidnappers are very real and are looking for unaccompanied minors. Yeah, I think it's one of those really clever turns of phrase that's super illustrative of, like, the internality of a child. Mm -hmm. Like, a kidnapper feels very real to us, but a kidnapper might as well be a vampire to a kid. Totally. At last, the guard returned. Once more, I was stowed away in the coach. My protector remounted his own seat, sounded his hollow horn, and away we rattled over the stony street of L. We got a footnote for that L with many hyphens after it. Should I check it? Sure. The reference is to Lord Byron's Child Herald's Pilgrimage, the car rolling over the stony street. Oh. Okay. And my version says, perhaps Charlotte Bronte is thinking of Leeds. Cowan Bridge was on the Leeds-Kendall coach route. Oh, that makes sense. That also kind of speaks to like a continued struggle for authors, especially in romance, which is, do you make direct reference to actual things? Will that break the story? Mm -hmm. It certainly does often whenever Chicago is referred to for me. It's just, don't get too specific. Like, describe the spirit of the thing. Like, Chicago has a spirit that I think lots of people can describe. But like, don't tell me about a specific restaurant or hate on a specific cocktail bar. You know what I mean? Yeah. You haven't been there. Don't tell me about the velvet plush seats and you're hating on it get out of here i see some wounds are still pretty fresh for you (laughs) (laughs) i do my best to live with them the afternoon came on wet and somewhat misty as it waned into dusk i began to feel we were getting far ahead indeed from gateshead we ceased to pass through towns the country changed great gray hills heaved up round the horizon as twilight deepened we descended a valley dark with wood, and long after night had overclouded the prospect, I heard a wild wind rushing among the trees. Lulled by the sound, I at last dropped asleep. I had not long slumbered when the sudden cessation of motion awoke me. The coach door was thrown open, and a person like a servant was standing at it. I saw her face and dress by the light of the lamps. A person like a servant. (laughs) 
Is there a little girl called Jane Eyre here? She asked. I answered, yes, and was then lifted out. My trunk was handed down and the coach instantly drove away. They're just carrying around this nine-year-old everywhere like she's a little sack of potatoes. Or like a doll. I was stiff with long sitting and bewildered with the noise and motion of the coach. Gathering my faculties, I looked about me. Rain, wind, and darkness filled the air. Nevertheless, I dimly discerned a wall before me and a door open in it. Through this door, I passed with my new guide. She shut and locked it behind her. There was now visible a house, or houses, for the building spread far, with many windows and lights burning in some. We went up a broad, pebbly path, splashing wet, and were admitted at a door. Then the servant led me through a passage into a room with a fire, where she left me alone. I stood and warmed my numbed fingers over the blaze. Then I looked round. There was no candle, but the uncertain light from the hearth showed by intervals, papered walls, carpet, curtains, shining mahogany furniture. It was a parlor, not so spacious or splendid as the drawing room at Gateshead, but comfortable enough. This scene reminds me of when she's describing the Red Room. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like Charlotte Bronte is like sketching scenes mm-hmm. because it's so affecting. You know, she's thinking about perspective. I love that Jane is an artist and I love the artist's perspective throughout the book. Yeah, I was just thinking this particular scene where she's come into this sitting room and she's making these comparisons strikes very much as like the very beginning of A Little Princess when she comes to the school and her father is going off to war and that like weird anxious feeling of being both excited to be at school but like anxious about what the future is going to hold and how like you just sketch the details rather than like take them in cinematically in panorama. I was puzzling to make out the subject of a picture on the wall when the door opened and an individual carrying a light entered. Another followed close behind. The first was a tall lady with dark hair, dark eyes, and a pale and large forehead. Her figure was partly enveloped in a shawl. Her countenance was grave, her bearing erect. The child is very young to be sent alone, said she, putting her candle down on the table. She considered me attentively for a minute or two, then further added, She had better be put to bed soon. She looks tired. Are you tired? She asked, placing her hand on my shoulder. A little, ma'am. And hungry, too, no doubt. Let her have some supper before she goes to bed, Miss Miller. Is this the first time you have left your parents to come to school, my little girl? I explained to her that I had no parents. She inquired how long they had been dead. Then, how old I was. What was my name? Whether I could read, write, and sew a little. Then she touched my cheek gently with her forefinger, saying, She hoped I should be a good child. Dismissed me along with Miss Miller. I have a note about the tall lady in mine that says, A tall lady. Miss Temple's character is said to be a just tribute to that of Miss Anne Evans, superintendent of Cowan Bridge School at the time the Brontes attended. Anne Evans later published a letter in 1855 protesting against what seemed to be the unfair treatment of the school in obituaries of Charlotte Bronte. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, a little bit of foreshadowing there for the listeners. (laughs) How this is going to go. I think you know how this about to go. The lady I had left might be about 29. The one who went with me appeared some years younger. The first impressed me by her voice, look, and air. Miss Miller was more ordinary, ruddy in complexion, though of a careworn countenance. Hurried in gait and action like the one who had always a multiplicity of tasks on hand. She looked, indeed, what I afterward found she really was 
an underteacher. Led by her, I passed from compartment to compartment, from passage to passage, of a large and irregular building, till, emerging from the total and somewhat dreary silence pervading the portion of the house we had traversed, we came upon the hum of many voices, and presently entered a wide, long room, with great deal tables, two at each end, on each of which burned a pair of candles, and seated all round on benches, a congregation of girls of every age from nine or ten to twenty. Seen by the dim light of the dips, their number to me appeared countless, though not in reality exceeding eighty. They were uniformly dressed in brown stuff, frocks. Stuff was a plain woolen material. That's interesting. That's a little etymology nugget for you. And brown stuff frocks of quaint fashion and long Holland pinafores. It was the hour of study. They were engaged in conning over their tomorrow's task, and the hum I had heard was the combined result of their whispered repetitions. Miss Miller signed to me to sit on a bench near the door. Then walking up to the top of the long room, she cried out, Monitors, collect the lesson books and put them away. Four tall girls arose from different tables and going around gathered the books and removed them. Miss Miller again gave the word of command. Monitors, fetch the supper trays. The tall girls went out and returned presently, each bearing a tray with portions of something. I knew not what. Arranged thereon in a pitcher of water and mug in the middle of each tray. The portions were handed round. Those who liked took a draught of the water, the mug being common to all. Ooh, gross. When it came to my turn I drank for I was thirsty but did not touch the food excitement and fatigue rendering me incapable of eating I now saw however that it was a thin oaten cake shared into fragments pretty bleak I think that's what Anne Hathaway ate in preparation for Les Mis Mm. and I stand by the fact that if anyone ate one thin oaten cake a day they could deliver that performance oh yeah and lose an insane amount of weight pretty quickly. Yeah, and just like all the sadness and desperation right up on the surface. Yeah. She's a very talented actress. Okay. (laughs) The meal over, prayers were read by Miss Miller, and the classes filed off two and two upstairs. Overpowered by this time with weariness, I scarcely noticed what sort of place the bedroom was, except that, like the schoolroom, I saw it was very long. Tonight I was to be Miss Miller's bedfellow. She helped me to undress, getting flashbacks of our written-by-a-man romance novel. (laughs) Do you remember that? I do remember that novel uh, very distinctly. I also like TMI about Isabeau, but I really love the phrase bedfellow, and it always makes me think about Much Ado when Beatrice is being asked, like, what happened to Hero, and she's like, I have this 12-month been her bedfellow. I'm like, I bet you were Beatrice. When laid down, I glanced at the long rows of beds, each of which was quickly filled with two occupants. In ten minutes, the single light was extinguished. Amid silence and complete darkness, I fell asleep. The night passed rapidly. I was too tired even to dream. I only once awoke to hear the wind rave in furious gusts and the wind fall in torrents, and to be sensible that Miss Miller had taken her place by my side. When I was growing up, I grew up in a very windy part of the world, and my bedroom was on the second floor and faced the majority of the wind. And Mm. so I'm really soothed by that really loud gusting sound. And it's just not something I've been able to find on like white noise sites and everything, at least not effective. And then I was thinking about how wind is like an acoustic potato. Hmm. You think you like it, but really, like, I don't really like the sound of wind. I like the sound of trees being knocked over and four 
horse hitting the glass of a bedroom window. And I don't mm-hmm. really like potatoes. I like butter and cream. <laughs> and potatoes are, or I like, you know, fries, you know? Right, they're just the vehicle. When I again unclosed my eyes, a loud bell was ringing. The girls were up and dressing. Day had not yet begun to dawn, and a rush light of two burned in the room. I too rose reluctantly. It was bitter cold, and I dressed well as I could for shivering, and washed. When there was a basin at liberty, which did not occur soon, as there was but one basin to six girls, on the stands down the middle of the room. Again the bell rung, all formed in file, two and two, and in that order descended the stairs and entered the cold and dimly lit school room. Here prayers were read by Miss Miller. Afterwards she called out, Form classes! A great tumult succeeded for some minutes, during which Miss Miller repeatedly exclaimed, Silence and order! When it subsided, I saw them all draw up in four semicircles before four chairs, placed at four tables, all held books in their hands, and a great book, like the Bible, lay on each table before the vacant seat. A pause of some seconds succeeded, filled up by the low, vague hum of numbers. Miss Miller walked from class to class, hushing this indefinite sound. A distant bell tinkled. Immediately, three ladies entered the room. Each walked to a table and took her seat. Miss Miller, assuming the fourth vacant chair, which was that nearest the door, and around which the smallest of the children were assembled. To this inferior class I was called, and placed at the bottom of it. Business now began. The day's collect was repeated, then certain texts of scriptures were said, and to these succeeded a protracted reading of chapters in the Bible, which lasted an hour. A collect is a particular prayer assigned to the day, in case you were wondering. It's so weird. I don't have that footnote. The footnotes between our editions are very, like, it's interesting to me what's included in each. Yeah, it is. And also, like, the differences in words. Mm-hmm. By the time that exercise was terminated, day had fully dawned. The indefatigable bell now sounded for the fourth time. The classes were marshaled and marched into another room to breakfast. How glad I was to behold a prospect of getting something to eat. I was now nearly sick from inanition. Exhaustion caused by hunger and thirst. Mm. Do you know how to say that word? Have you ever encountered it before? I have literally never seen it in my life. Inanition. Having taken so little the day before. The refectory was great, low-ceilinged, gloomy room. On two long tables smoked basins of something hot, which, however to my dismay, sent forth an odor far from inviting. (laughs) I saw a universal manifestation of discontent when the fumes of the repast met the nostrils of those destined to swallow it. From the van of the procession, the tall girls of the first class rose and whispered words. Disgusting. The porridge is burned again. Silence, ejaculated a voice, teehee. Not that of Miss Miller, but of one of the upper teachers, a little and dark personage, smartly dressed but of somewhat morose aspect, who installed herself at the top of one table while a more buxom lady presided at the other. I looked in vain for her I'd first seen the night before. She was not visible. Miss Miller occupied the foot of the table where I sat, and a strange foreign-looking elderly lady, the French teacher as I afterward found, took the corresponding seat at the other board. A long grace was said and a hymn sung. Then a servant brought in some tea for the teachers and the meal began. Whew. It's a real cast of characters. It's also so much religion in two hours. Like they spent an hour at the Bible. They did the collect. They said their prayers. Now they're singing a hymn and having another prayer. I'm like, what is this? It's probably not that different from our schooling. It's just we had a wider variety of topics. That's true. 
Ravenous, and now very faint, I devoured a spoonful or two of my portion without thinking of its taste. But the first edge of hunger blunted, I perceived I had not gotten hand a nauseous mess. Burned porridge is almost as bad as rotten potatoes. Famine itself soon sickens over it. The spoons were moved slowly. I saw each girl taste her food and try to swallow it, but in most cases the effort was soon relinquished. Breakfast was over, and none had breakfasted. Thanks being returned for what we had not got, and a second hymn chanted, the refractory was evacuated for the schoolroom. I was one of the last to go out, and in passing the tables I saw one teacher take a basin of the porridge and taste it. She looked at the others, all their countenances expressed displeasure, and one of them, the stout one, whispered, abominable stuff, how shameful. A quarter of an hour passed before the lessons again begun, during which the schoolroom was in a glorious tumult. From that space of time, it seemed to be permitted to talk loud and more freely, and they used their privilege. How do you know someone went to a Montessori school when they were growing up? They tie their shoes differently? No, they tell you. joke literally never gets old and I never anticipate it. I tell it to you all the time. I also tell it to Brandon's friend who's like deep Montessori and now works at one. She loves it. That's so funny. She also laughs every time, but I should probably tell other jokes. The whole conversation ran on the breakfast, which one and all abused roundly. Poor things was the sole consolation they had. Miss Miller was not the only teacher in the room. A group of great girls standing about her spoke with serious and sullen gestures. I heard the name of Mr. Brocklehurst pronounced by some lips, at which point Miss Miller shook her head disapprovingly, but she made no great effort to check the general wrath. Doubtless, she shared in it. A clock in the schoolroom struck nine. Miss Miller left her circle and standing in the middle of the room cried, Silence! To your seat! Discipline prevailed. In five minutes, the confused throng was resolved into order and comparative silence quelled the babble clamor of tongues. The upper teachers now punctually returned their post, but still all seemed to wait. Ranged on benches down the sides of the room, the 80 girls sat motionless and erect, a quaint assemblage they appeared, all with plain locks combed from their faces, not a curl visible, in brown dresses made high and surrounded by a narrow tucker about the throat. A tucker, a cloth worn around the neck with little pockets of holland shaped something like a highlander's purse tied in front of their frocks and destined to serve the purpose of a work bag all too wearing woolen stockings and country-made shoes fastened with brass buckles above 20 of those clad in this costume were full-grown girls or rather young women it suited them ill and gave an air of oddity even to the prettiest nobody looks good in a dicky <laughs> a tucker <laughs> I love it. it. That's exactly what a Tucker is. It's a dicky. You are exactly right. It's a (laughs) dicky. I remember once we started cleaning out my mom's closet for like the first time in years and she had no less than seven dickies. Oh my God. That's one for every day of the week. A couple were holiday dickies. <laughs> Holidickies. Holidickies. That's so good. She was a grade school teacher. She just retired this past year. And I remember I would walk into her classroom, you know, of like fourth graders and she was so patient and always so warm. And those kids were just like, they could not sit still mm-hmm. and they were all so sticky. And I was like, I'm not made of this to be a teacher but listening to this description in Jane Eyre it reminds me of the first time I went to a women's only gym and everything was like so quiet and clean and efficient and not sticky and comfortable wow female only utopia 2021 Mm. 
I was still looking at them and also at intervals, examining the teachers, none of whom precisely pleased me, for the stout one was a little coarse, the dark one not a little fierce, the foreigner harsh and grotesque, <laughs> oh, God. and Miss Miller, poor thing, looked purple, weather-beaten, and overworked, when, as my eye wandered from face to face, the whole school rose simultaneously as if moved by a common spring. What was the matter? I had heard no order given. I was puzzled. Ere I had gathered my wits, the classes were again seated, but as all eyes were now turned to one point, mine followed the general direction and encountered the personage who had received me last night. She stood at the bottom of the long room on the hearth, for there was a fire at each end. She surveyed the two rows of girls silently and gravely. Miss Miller, approaching, seemed to ask her question, and having received her answer, went back to her place and said aloud, Monitor of the first class, fetch the globes! While the direction was being executed, the lady consulted moved slowly up the room. I supposed I have a considerable organ of veneration, mm. for I retain yet the sense of admiring awe with which my eyes tracked her steps. Seen now in broad daylight, she looked tall, fair, and shapely. Mm. Brown eyes with a benignant... Is it benignant? It must be benignant because that's benign. Yeah. Light in their irids, which is irises. That is crazy. Another little etymology nugget for you. And a fine penciling of long lashes round relieved the whiteness of her large front, which is her forehead. <laughs> you thought boo. And you were wrong. It's her forehead. Get your mind out of the gutter. It's just funny because that's how they refer to Moby Dick. His large white front. His large white front and his large white donk. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. On each of her temples, her hair of a very dark brown was clustered in round curls according to the fashion of those times when neither smooth bands nor long ringlets were in vogue. Her dress, also in the mode of the day, was of purple cloth relieved by a sort of Spanish trimming of black velvet, a gold watch, watches were not so common then as now, shone at her girdle. Let the reader add, to complete the picture, refined features, a complexion if pale and clear and a stately air of carriage and he will have at least as clearly as words can give it a correct idea of the exterior of miss temple maria temple as i afterwards saw the name written in a prayer book entrusted to me to carry to church I love this. You do really get the sense that at this point, Charlotte Bronte is like telling you a story. Suddenly things have kind of shifted into an oral tradition and she's sharing a memory with you. Mm-hmm. And she's trying really hard. She's like, a gold watch, which wasn't a thing back then, you know. Mm-hmm. I love these kind of little tonal shifts. The superintendent of Lowood, for such was this lady, having taken her seat before a pair of globes, placed <laughs> on one of the tables summoned the first class round her and commenced giving a lesson in geography. The lower classes were called by the teachers. Repetitions in history, grammar, etc. went on for an hour. Writing and arithmetic succeeded, and music lessons were given by Miss Temple to some of the elder girls. The duration of each lesson was measured by the clock, which at last struck twelve. The superintendent rose. I have a word to address to the pupils, said she. The tumult of cessation from lessons was already breaking forth, but it sunk at her voice. 
She went on. You had this morning a breakfast which you could not eat. You must be hungry. I have ordered that a lunch of bread and cheese shall be served to all. The teachers looked at her with a sort of surprise. It is to be done on my responsibility, she added in an explanatory tone to them, and immediately afterward left the room. Does that mean she's buying lunch? Yeah, that's exactly what that means. Bread and cheese on me. Bread and cheese on me. The bread and cheese was presently brought in and distributed to the high delight and refreshment of the whole school. The order was now given to the garden. Each put on a coarse straw bonnet with strings of colored calico and a cloak of gray frieze. I was similarly equipped, and following the stream, I made my way into the open air. Yeah, you were similarly equipped. It's a school uniform. I also love that she has, like, literally spoken to no one in basically, like, 14 hours at this point. I'm now thinking about, like, all those prayers and stuff before breakfast as when we, like, used to say the... Pledge of Allegiance. And morning announcements. The garden was a wide enclosure, surrounded with walls so high as to exclude every glimpse of prospect. A covered veranda ran down on one side, and broad walks bordered a middle space divided into scores of little beds. These beds were assigned as gardens for the pupils to cultivate. Oh, how nice. And each bed had an owner. When full of flowers, they would doubtless look pretty. But now, at the latter end of January, all was wintry blight and brown decay. I shuddered as I stood and looked around me. It was an inclement day for outdoor exercise. Never true. Not positively rainy, but wet with the floods of yesterday. The stronger among the girls ran about engaged in active games, but sundry pale and thin ones herded together for shelter and warmth <laughs> in the veranda. And among these, as the dense mist penetrated to their shivering frames, I heard frequently the sound of a hollow cough. Oh, now I feel bad. Also gym class. As yet, I had spoken to no one, nor did anybody seem to take notice of me. I stood lonely enough, but to that feeling of isolation I was accustomed. It did not oppress me much. That don't oppress me, me much. much. I thought the uh, exact uh, same uh, thing. Uh, oh. <laughs> I leaned against a pillar of the veranda. I love these talks. <laughs> Drew my gray mantle close about me and trying to forget the cold which nipped me without and the unsatisfied hunger of which gnawed me within, delivered myself up to the employment of watching and thinking. How new for you, Jane. <laughs> Refreshing. <laughs> Glad you're taking full opportunity to reinvent yourself. 50 miles away from Gateshead. I know. 50 miles away from Gateshead and zero miles away from Gateshead. <laughs> My reflections were too undefined and fragmentary to merit record. I hardly yet knew where I was. Gateshead in my past life seemed floated away to an immeasurable distance. <laughs> That's so funny. It's like it's talking back to I us. know. It's so specific. The present was vague and strange, and of the future I could form no conjecture. I looked around the convent-like garden, and then up at the house, a large building, half of which seemed gray and old, the other half quite new. The new part, containing the schoolroom and dormitory, was lighted by mullioned and latticed windows, which gave it a church-like aspect. A stone tablet over the door bore the inscription, Lowood Institution. This portion was rebuilt A.D. many hyphens by Naomi Brocklehurst of Brocklehurst Hall in this county. Let your light to shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father capitalized, which is in heaven. St. Matthew verse 16. 
I read these words over and over again. I felt that an explanation belonged to them and was unable fully to penetrate their import. I was still pondering the significance of institution and endeavoring to make out a connection between the first words and the verse of scripture when the sound of a cough close behind me made me turn my head. I saw a girl sitting on a stone bench near. She was bent over a book on the perusal of which she seemed intent. From where I stood, I could see the title. It was Rasselas, a name which struck me as strange, me too, Jane, and consequently attractive, same girl. In turning a leaf, she happened to look up, and I said to her directly, Is your book interesting? I had already formed the intention of asking her to lend it to me someday. I like it, she answered after a pause of a second or two, during which she examined me. What is it about? I continued. I hardly know where I found the hardihood thus to open a conversation with a stranger. The step was contrary to my nature and habits, but I think her occupation touched a chord of sympathy somewhere, for I too liked reading, though of a frivolous and childish kind. I could not digest or comprehend the serious or substantial. You may look at it replied the girl offering me the book i love it such a good childhood like you may touch it <laughs> i did so a brief examination convinced me that the contents were less taking than the title rasselas looked dull to my trifling taste i saw nothing about fairies nothing about genie no bright variety seemed spread over the closely printed pages. I returned it to her. She received it quietly, and without saying anything, she was about to relapse into her former studious mood. Again, I ventured to disturb her. Can you tell me what the writing on the stone over the door means? What is Lowood Institution? This house where you are come to live. And why do they call it institution? Is it in any way different from other schools? It is partly a charity school. You and I and all the rest of us are charity children. I suppose you are an orphan. Are not either your father or mother dead? Both died before I can remember. Well, all the girls here have lost either one or both parents, and this is called an institution for educating orphans. Do we pay no money? Do they keep us for nothing? We pay, or our friends pay, 15 pounds a year for each. Then why do they call us charity children? Good fucking question. <laughs> because 15 pounds is not enough for board and teaching, and the deficiency is supplied by subscription. Who subscribes? Different benevolent-minded ladies and gentlemen in this neighborhood and in London. Who was Naomi Brocklehurst? The lady who built the new part of this house, as that tablet records, and whose son overlooks and directs everything here. Why? Because he is treasurer and manager of the establishment. Then this house does not belong to that tall lady who wears a watch and who said we were to have some bread and cheese? To Miss Temple? Oh no, I wish it did. She has to answer to Mr. Brocklehurst for all she does. Mr. Brocklehurst buys all our food and all our clothes. Does he live here? No, two miles off at a large hall. Is he a good man? He is a clergyman and is said to do a great deal of good. Did you say that the tall lady was called Miss Temple? Yes. And what are the other teachers called? The one with red cheeks is called Miss Smith. She attends to the work and cuts out, for we make our own clothes, our frocks, and pelisses and everything. The little one with black hair is Miss Scatcherd. She teaches history and grammar and hears the second class repetition. And the one who wears a shawl and has a pocket handkerchief tied to her side with a yellow ribbon is Madame Perrault. She comes from Lise in France and teaches French. Do you like the teachers? 
well enough. Do you like the little black one and the Madame many hyphens? <laughs> I cannot pronounce her name as you do. Miss Scatcherd is hasty. You must take care not to offend her. Madame Perrault is not a bad sort of person. We have a black character. But Miss Temple is the best, isn't she? Miss Temple is very good and very clever. She's above the rest because she knows far more than they do. Have you been long here? Two years. Are you an orphan? My mother is dead. Are you happy here? You ask rather too many questions. I have given you answers enough for the present. Now I want to read. But at that moment, the summons sounded for dinner. All re-entered the house. The odor which now filled the refectory was scarcely more appetizing than that which had regaled our nostrils at breakfast. The dinner was served in two huge tin-plated vessels. Quince arose, a strong steam redolent of rancid fat. Yikes. I found the mess to consist of indifferent potatoes and strange shreds of rusty meat mixed and cooked together. Of this preparation, a tolerably abundant plateful was portioned to each pupil. I ate what I could and wondered within myself whether every day's fare would be like this. After dinner, we immediately adjourned to the schoolroom. Lessons recommenced, and we continued till five o'clock. Wow. The only marked event of the afternoon was that I saw the girl with whom I had conversed in the veranda dismissed in disgrace by Miss Scatcherd from a history class and sent to stand in the middle of the large schoolroom. The punishment seemed to me in a high degree ignominious, especially for so great a girl. She looked 13 or upward. I expected she would show signs of great distress and shame, but to my surprise, she neither wept nor blushed. Composed, though grave, she stood, the central mark of all eyes. How can she bear it so quietly, so firmly? I asked of myself. Were I in her place, it seems to me I should wish the earth to open and swallow me up. She looks as if she were thinking of something beyond her punishment, beyond her situation, something not round her nor before her. I have heard of daydreams. Is she in a daydream now? Her eyes fixed on the floor, but I am sure they do not see it. Her sight seems turned in, gone down into her heart. She is looking at what she can remember, I believe, not at what is really present. I wonder what sort of girl she is, whether good or naughty. Soon after 5 p.m. we had another meal, consisting of a small mug of coffee and half a slice of brown bread. I devoured my bread and drank my coffee with relish, but I should have been glad of as much more. I was still hungry. Half an hour's recreation succeeded, then study, then the glass of water and the piece of oat cake, prayers, and bed. Such was my first day at Lowood. It's a shit day. So let's talk about Helen, who we just met. So my notes have a girl, Helen. The character of Helen Burns is based on that of Charlotte Bronte's sister, Mariah, who died of tuberculosis at the age of 11. Charlotte insisted that she had exaggerated nothing in the character of Helen. And then Rasselas by Samuel Johnson, 1759. Johnson's characters are concerned with the problems, very relevant to Helen's conversation with Jane, of where happiness is to be found and what is the good life. Like Helen, Johnson's princess, Nakaya, concludes, to me, the choice of life is become less important i hope hereafter to think only on the choice of eternity yeah a lot of foreshadowing there i also want to reflect on the inscription and how that's going to come to bear of institution yeah i know that jane fixates on the institution but i kind of feel like there's something else there let me take a look let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father which is in heaven 
I think this is a little bit of foreshadowing as well Mm -hmm. because Jane is not a beautiful woman, but her light is going to shine before a man. Rightly. Rightly. That's all I wanted to say. Yeah, no, I think it's right. I think at every turn, Charlotte Bronte's skill is further in evidence. And hammering down some observations about quote-unquote institutions that I think are still relevant today. Yes, A lot of people are making a lot of money off of institutions, and I plan on being one of them. Yeah, it's also like the food situation where it's like, are we charity girls? And it's like, well, you know, you pay 15 pounds a year to be here so why do they call us charity girls like that whole thing is so good yeah and it's like somebody's making a profit off of those 15 dollars totally and the subscriptions of you know whatever whatever yeah and that's mr brocklehurst yeah a lot to look forward to in our next reading better known as chapter six do you have any parting thoughts for our introduction to Lowood School. I just love that the real person that Miss Temple is based off of was so incensed by what seems so far to be a pretty fair description, was so upset that she like argued about it at obituaries of Charlotte Bronte. I know. I like that your footnotes are so gossipy. Yeah, none of this is like very historically minded. All of this is like, <laughs> did you hear? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what are you going to get with the Oxford's world's classics? They don't care about history. They just care about people. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Can't wait to read with you again. Perfect. And with that, loosen your Janes. But never your heirs.